Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Lyman Stone, a senior fellow at the Cardis Institute focused on demographics, fertility, and the family. He's recently authored a major report for Cardis entitled, She's Not Having a Baby, Why Half of Canadian Women Are Falling Short of Their Fertility Desires, which finds that Canadian women are having fewer children than they say they want. I'm grateful to speak with him about the research, its key findings, and their possible policy implications. Lyman, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the new report. Thank you. It's it's great to be with you, and I'm I'm glad to see the the report getting uh, making the rounds and uh, being part of the conversation. This isn't our first conversation, actually. I I interviewed you in August 2021 for the Hub about your work on the gap between idealized and actual family sizes in countries around the world. In this new report for Cardis, you extend your analysis to Canada. Before we get into the report itself, though, let's start with a refresher on the basic concepts for our listeners. What does it mean for there to be a gap between idealized versus actual family sizes? And what's a missing birth or an excess birth for that matter? That's a great question. This report, the, the challenge we had was there's kind of the, the demographer language and then there's the language real humans speak. Um, <laughs> so when we talk about fertility, We've got a couple of different indicators that we think about. One of them is a very common one that most people have encountered called the total fertility rate. And this is basically an imaginary family size that a hypothetical woman would have over the course of her life if current birth rates by age, as they are right now, stayed the same for her whole life. It's a really crude, blunt indicator. It's not terribly accurate. But it's, it's a nice kind of synopsis of how things are going right now for fertility. Then we have a different indicator, which we can think of as completed fertility, which is how many children have women actually had by a certain age. That's not the same as total fertility because total fertility is just kind of a hypothetical estimate. Completed fertility is an actual one. So it's only really meaningful at a higher age, like 45 or so. For younger women, they, you know, the timing of birth changes. But then we have the, the indicators that are really of interest to our report, and that is basically fertility intentions and fertility preferences. So these are answers that women, and there are surveys of women for a variety of reasons. Basically, uh, most of the research on this topic focuses on women for a variety of reasons. And then secondly, um, women are the ones gestating a child, so they're carrying a unique load. They suffer the largest work penalties for having kids. And also men 
tends to misreport their fertility. Some men are not aware of all the children they have, or they do not acknowledge all the children they have, even if they are aware. So, so men are kind of a troublesome survey group. So, so anyways, fertility preferences are what a lot of this reports new contributions are, is how many kids do people want to have? We asked about fertility preferences using several different question wordings. I'm not going to bog down in them too much, but basically one of those wordings asked people to think about in their ideal world, how many children would they personally want to have? And then the other question basically asked, okay, but realistically, how many children do you actually intend to have? Now, I want to be clear. There were a small number of women who intended to have children they did not want to have. Okay? And the reason for that is very simple. Their partner wanted the kid. Okay? So it's important to understand intentions are actually not statements about desires. Intentions are statements about how your desires crash into reality and you try to, you know, make the compromise between the two. So when someone says, I intend to have two kids, that's not actually telling you anything about what they want to have. They might want five, but, you know, have had a lot of adverse experiences in life that have made that hard. Maybe they didn't get, they couldn't find a suitable partner until they were 37, right? So that's why we ask separately about kind of your ideal personal desires and then also your intentions. And what I can tell you is in longitudinal data, both both intentions and these abstract desires do strongly predict behaviors. Women who say they intend or want more do are actually more likely to have more. Um, and, and we found that as well. We also asked a question of like, are you actively trying to become pregnant? And women who said they desired more or intended more were much more likely to say they were actively trying to become pregnant. So that's, these things are actually predictive behaviors. So these are, these are the terms we're looking at is these, we ask about personal desires, personal intentions, and then also this like, you know, do you actually expect to have a child in the next two years? Like very short term. These, these are the indicators we really focus on. So then we get into these undershooting and overshooting or missing and excess children. Because a lot of women will say, you know, ideally, you know, and particularly for this, we're looking at like women over age 40, right? And they'll say, look, personally, I wanted three kids. I only have two. So we call that gap a missing kid or fertility undershooting. Some women will say, in an ideal world, if my life had worked out perfectly, I would have had two kids, but I actually have three. Now, it's important to understand, those women are not saying they don't love that third child. <laughs> what they're saying is, often what's going on is they're saying, look, in an ideal world, I would have got married to somebody, had two kids, and we would have lived happily ever after. Instead, I got married to them, we had two kids, they committed adultery with someone else, we got divorced, I got married a second time, and I had another child with that part. My life didn't work out the way I ideally wanted to, but I made the best of it I could. So this is not an expression of regret about having children. About it's, it's not they don't like their third kid. But what we do find is that whether women have excess kids or missing kids, they do report lower life satisfaction than women who hit their, their goals. Now, women who have excess kids have a bigger loss in life satisfaction than women who have missing kids. So individually, like pound for pound, an excess child is more disruptive to a woman's life than a missing child, which, no surprise, kids are a lot of 
work, but only about 15% of women in their 40s report excess kids, whereas about 46% report missing kids. So although, you know, kid for kid, an excess kid is more disruptive, there are so many more missing children that these two things across all of Canadian society, women lose about as much life satisfaction from missing kids as they lose from excess kids. That's a great kind of scene setter for the paper. But I just want to ask one more contextual point, because for me, one of the most fascinating insights in the report is that you have data going back to the 1960s on women's ideal number of children and their own intentions. You observe that in and around the 1990s, we start to see a gap emerge between preferences and actual outcomes. Do you want to elaborate on these trends in order to help contextualize uh, the paper's findings? Sure. So you actually, you, you undersold us a little bit. We actually have surveys on personal, on fertility ideals going back to the 1940s. 1945 is the oldest survey that we could find of Canadian fertility ideals. And what we find, talking about ideals, is that in the 1940s and 50s, Canadian women are reported wanting about like 3.5 to 4 kids. Sometimes people will be like, well, how can you want 3.5 kids? This is an average. Some people said three, some people said four, some people said five, some people said two, you know, okay. So on average, 3.5 or four kids in the 1940s and 50s. But by the 19, by 1970, desires have fallen to about 2.5 and they remain stable at about 2.5 until about 20, you know, 18, 2015, 2018, something like that. But then in our survey, we found uh, desires around 2.2 or 2.3, okay? Which is to say, we kind of have, you know, these high desires in the past, and then for a long time, these kind of moderate desires. And then just in the last, you know, two to five years, it does look like there might have been a decline to slightly lower desires. Now, over time, Canadian fertility rates have also fluctuated. In the report, we didn't explore how the implied gap has changed over time. But what we do find our report is the first one to show fertility intentions below two. So there have been three prior surveys of fertility intentions in Canada. They all found fertility intentions around 2.1 or 2.2 kids per woman. And we find approximately 1.9. Just to say Canadian women today do not even intend to have two kids each. Now, they do still want to have two kids each, two or a little bit more realistically, they don't actually expect to be able to do that. Yeah, that brings us directly to the findings in the, in the study. So why don't, why don't you unpack those insights? What did you find? Are Canadian, Canadian women indeed having fewer kids uh, than they say they want? So the simplest way to do this is I mentioned that total fertility rate, this current, you know, sort of uh, now casting of, of uh, Canadian uh, family size. Right now in Canada, it's about 1.4 which means if current birth rates remain stable, Canadian women will have about 1.4 kids. Now, that's not really what's going to happen. Fertility rates will keep falling on the whole, but as women age, higher age fertility rates may rise. It's a complicated thing to forecast what completed fertility will actually be. But if you take 1.4 at face value, young Canadian women today say they want, they personally desire to have about two kids. They're only likely to have 1.4. So they're going to be missing 0.6 on average. Canadian women who are in their 40s today 
say that they wanted 2.4 kids, they're only likely to have about 1.9. Actually, they only currently report having about 1.9, which is to say they are missing on average about 0.5 kids each. So that is to say every other Canadian woman in her 40s is missing a child she wanted to have. No, it's actually not, perhaps it's not quite that simple. Some women are missing two or three kids they wanted to have, some women have excess, but you, you get it, we're talking averages here. I see that as a real concerning thing. But I, I do want to caveat, it might not be concerning. There might be good reasons for this. So you can imagine a world where the reason women are not having the kids they say they want is because other things in life became so good, so wonderful, so exciting and desirable that they just no longer felt it was that important to have kids. Right? So, so you can imagine. Now, I've already told you one problem with that theory, which is that we have the life satisfaction of these women, and women who undershoot actually have lower. Uh, so, so that's not wildly plausible. The meat of this report really was in exploring that question more deeply. Why do women under or overshoot? Yeah, we'll, we'll come to that because, as you say, Lyman, it, it gets to a kind of the heart of this issue, which is if there are obstacles standing in the way of women having as many children as they say they, they want, it prompts the question, what is the role for public policy to address those obstacles or impediments? And I, I promise we'll, we'll come to those insights in the paper. But before we get there, you want to talk a bit about the various ways in which you cut the data, including sure. age, race, yeah. income, and provinces. Do any of these different lenses, lenses produce noteworthy results? I, I think they do. So, I mean, just running through some of the, the, the graphs in the report, which, I mean, look, I got, I got a, you know, I got a toot the horn of Cardis here. Um, they did a great job, like, laying out this report. It's, it's really attract, like an attractive report to, to flip through. It's like, go here, look here. at the graphs. They've done a great job. I can't take any design credit. I basically gave them, <laughs> sorry, I basically gave them uh, like some Excel spreadsheets and they made it beautiful. But uh, so, you know, if we look by province, out in the Prairie provinces, which for our purposes, you know, is, is uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, they have the highest fertility preferences, 2.4 kids desired personally on average. And they're also the only place in Canada where women still intend to have more than two kids. Hmm. They intend to have 2.1. So what's going on there? That's probably a difference in, you know, religiosity, you know, kind of worldview orientation could also be a, a rurality could be a factor there. I actually was a little bit surprised that this difference wasn't even bigger, but it is noted that the, the, the prairie provinces are the only places in Canada where women think they might have, so to speak, replacement rate fertility, mm -hmm. population stability. The lowest fertility preferences in Canada, and this was surprising to me. I didn't expect this because I, I guess I don't know Canadian regional stereotypes very well, was in Atlantic Canada. In my head, it was going to be British Columbia. I had in my head that, that BC was going to be the, the, the real kind of low preference place, place, but actually Atlantic Canada. So that's, you know, for, for our purposes, that's, you know, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick. These places, women only, their ideal family size was 1.7 their intended was just 1.4. This is really, really low. This is unusual. I can tell you there are not a lot of places in the world where women will report ideals of 1.7. Hmm. 
that's what we measure in mainland China. That's where we find numbers like that. I don't think any U.S. state has a number that low. So that's really interesting to me. I, Again, I don't know. I've never been to Atlantic Canada. I can't give you a deep, insightful explanation on why that is. But it is really striking and really, I think, kind of pessimistic, kind of bearish about the population future of Atlantic Canada, to be quite honest. So I thought, I think those are the two big standouts regionally. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I bounce back. I wonder, I mean, you, you, you looked over the report. I, you might know better than me. Do you have, do you have any speculations on, on what stood out to you about the, the regional split? Cause I, I kind of just said, well, that's interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I share your surprise uh, about the, the low in, intentionality in the, the Maritimes. It, there's a tendency to think about maritime culture as more solidaristic, more kind of communitarian. And so one would think that there would be a, a greater tendency towards family and, and, and larger families. I suspect, this is obviously conjecture, one of the findings of the paper is that there's a relationship between income and number of children. Um, yes. And it is the case, of course, that Western Canada is richer. So it may be that those two, for lack of a better term, intersectionalities are related. Yeah. But I would say, as, as you said, Lyman, that, that listeners ought to dig into the data because besides the headline numbers, there's fascinating analysis along regional, uh, age-based and income lines. Well, maybe it'd be worthwhile to highlight on that, that income thing, because I think that's that's a big part of the story, especially when we get to kind of why women are postponing, is that we found a really weird income split. This is one that I'll be honest. I mean, I study, I study this stuff in a lot of countries and I don't often see what we found in Canada. It, so uh, if you're familiar with like US or European discourses about fertility at all, you, then you know that the stereotype, which is, there's some empirical basis for it, is that poor people have bigger families. That's a stereotype. That's it's not 100% true, but there's, there's some empirical basis for it. That is not what we found in Canada. <laughs> what we found in our data was that the higher income you were, the bigger a family you reported desiring. So for example, women with under $25,000 in family income reported only ideally wanting two kids, whereas women with over $200,000 in family income reported wanting 2.6. And the same difference showed up for intentions. Women under 25,000, only in, actually women, um, women under 50,000, really, only intended 1.6 kids. Whereas women with over $200,000 in family income intended 2.2. This is a really remarkable gradient. And we showed, we found that it showed up in, um, in actual children ever born as well. It showed up in near term fertility expectations, all these things. So what we found is that Canada is a place where fertility is uniquely positively correlated with income, which is sort of nerd speak for <laughs> Canada is a place where family is a sign of wealth and social class. If you're rich, you can buy the right to have kids. It's a place where th there's this, I mean, this is like a classic, this is exactly the kind of thing you would you would expect if economic barriers are a huge factor limiting fertility, causing people, and not just short-term economic barriers, like, oh, right now costs are high. 
deep economic structures that are shaping people's expectations and ideals about their future. Because we see that difference in desires. This is not just women saying, oh, I'd like three, but I'm not going to have it. This is women saying, I can't even fathom a life of this big thing. So to me, that says Canada is a place where there's a really deeply entrenched set of kind of economic and social structures that are making people associate family size with material, ambition, career, and success. Yeah, that's a, a fascinating finding, which is a, a you know, some, maybe somewhat counterintuitive for some listeners because, of course, we have pretty generous, means-tested child benefits. When I read that, Lyman, I, I wondered, given that so much of our population is concentrated in a small number of major cities with some of the highest housing costs in the industrialized world, if that has an effect on women in those cities and their aspirations for family size. Uh, but if I can zoom out a bit, because you've mentioned a couple of times um, global context, you've done similar research spanning various other countries. Can you place the, the, your finding of an average of 0.5 missing children in that broader research? Is Canada's gap bigger or smaller than peer jurisdictions in, say, the United States or, or parts of Europe? You know, actually, it's very similar. It's going to be very similar to what you find in other Anglophone countries. It's, it's bigger than what you find in, like, France. I'd have to check what the Nordics look like right now, but it's very similar to other Anglophone countries, like the U.S., Canada, or U.S., Australia, U.K., stuff like that. So I, I wouldn't say it's exceptionally big. It is strangely distributed, this income pattern. But actually... Fertility undershooting is endemic across the high-income world. And in fact, the low-income world as well. There, you know, there's a very large share of Africa where women have fewer children than they say they want. Not because they're having very few kids, but because they actually want big families. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of places in Africa where women report wanting six or seven kids, and they on average have four or five. And of course, you know, United Nations population demographers and, you know, family planning experts say, oh, this is a crisis, disempowered women. It's like, well, they said wanted five kids. I'm not, there might be disempowerment, but I'm not sure it's working in the direction you think it is. But that, that's, that's a whole different beast right there. <laughs> but yeah, I, Canada's overall gap wasn't unusual. I think that the patterns we see in Canada, Canada has a lot of uniqueness to it that I think we really tried to explore and highlight. So, for example, you know, you know, our sample is sort of strange because, you know, we had to translate our whole survey into French because we wanted to have a really large French oversample because we wanted to make sure that we were capturing the possibly very big differences between Anglo and Franco, Francophone uh, Canada. And then also because Canada has such a big, growing, diverse immigrant population, we really had a pretty elaborate set of like native language, mother tongue, ethnic origin questions. And we had an oversample of immigrants as well, because we wanted to make sure we were capturing the really unique diversity of Canada that, that makes it a very different beast from other countries. Nonetheless, while Canada is different in a lot of ways, the human capital intensive development model that Canada has is shared across a lot of countries. And a lot of them have a very similar problem. One final question before we dig into the implications of your analysis. 
if Canada's fertility rate is roughly 1.4 children per woman, what does it mean that women are having on average 0.5 fewer children than they say they want? Does it mean that we'd actually be close to the replacement rate if we were able to close this gap? If every woman in Canada had exactly the number of children that she says she personally desires, Canada would have replacement rate fertility. Canadian women report wanting replacement rate fertility. That is their stated desire. Now, you can make it that what you will. Maybe you have caveats. Maybe you think, oh, is surveys really the right measure, way to measure that, whatever. But that is what they say they want. So you can either listen to what women say they want, or you can think you know better than them. Personally, I feel that if I told my wife, you say you want X number of kids, but actually I know what you really want, I don't think it would like be a great thing for me to say. <laughs> In practice, this is what policymakers do. They say, oh, you, you know, surveys show you want this, but do you really? We think we know better what you really want. But it, yes, it'd be, we, Canada would have, would have uh, replacement rate fertility, uh, replacement rate fertility, uh, which I guess we haven't defined that term, but it, it means the fertility rate at which population in the long run with no change in mortality will be stable even without immigration. Now, Canada also gets tons of immigration. So if you had a replacement rate fertility and your life expectancy improving and you had all this immigration, you know, the pathway to 100 million Canadians or 150 million Canadians would be a straight shot at current rates of change, which, you know, I think uh, different people have different views of what's desirable for Canada's future. Do you want, you know, to pilfer language from, from, uh, from across the pond? Do you want great Canada or little Canada? <laughs> and I think, you know, people will have different views of that, particularly when it comes to, you know, questions about environment and, and, and ecological sustainability and crowding and housing, things like that. My bias, I'd like to see uh, a billion Americans. And if we have a billion Americans, I'd love for our Canadian neighbors not to feel too put upon. Uh, so like you all, you all really, you, you should probably get like a hundred million or something, you know, like just, just to have a fair distribution. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'd like, I'd love to see a uh, great and mighty Canada, but, uh, but there will be difference of, of views on that kind of you're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was... Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. One of the reasons why this research is so important is that it challenged the notion that our declining fertility rate is merely a function of personal preferences and as such, is not really responsive to public policy interventions. What, according to your survey, are the factors behind the gap between idealized and actual fertility rates? The story that you would want to find if you wanted to justify a, some public program to tackle fertility is 
that the number one reason that people aren't having kids is some specific concrete financial cost. Childcare costs too much. That's why I'm not having kids. That's what you would want to find. That is not what we found. The story you would want to find if you want to say, oh, it's all just, you know, people don't really want this. It's just changing preferences. Is you'd want to see that people only report desiring 1.8 kids. That's not what we found. What we found is a much more nuanced story of an interaction between changing material costs and changing values, norms, and attitudes. So we asked women, basically the question we asked was, thinking about your family planning or your, I forget the exact wording, but basically as you think about like the, the decisions you make about your family, which, you know, what factors have influenced it? And then we gave them a couple of simple options, you know, finances, work-life balance, you know, a couple of these things, very broad things. And then if they said, oh, financial issues, we said, oh, what kind of financial issues? Was it housing? Was it childcare? Was it, you know, your job doesn't pay enough, whatever. And we gave them all these details. And then we also gave women an opportunity to just write in whatever they wanted. We got tons of responses. Very few women selected only one reason that only one factor influencing their family, their family decisions. And then what we did is we said, okay, if we compare women who gave a given reason to women who didn't give that reason, how do their fertility expectations differ? And what we looked at is their expectations in the next two years, because academic research suggests that's the most accurate survey response. But actually, I can say we also tested this against their intentions to ever have more, and we found the same thing. And we tested it against their personal fertility ideals, and we found very similar responses too. So this actually applies to all of our indicators, but it's, we focused on the next two years because that's the most academically well-founded uh, indicator. So what we found is that the number one reason that Canadian women report sort of the number one concern influencing their fertility plans is that they really want to grow and develop more as a person before they have kids. So you have to ask, what does that mean? Is that an economic barrier? Or is that a change in values and attitudes? And I would answer that it's both. So on the one hand, there's values and attitudes about what it means to be a fully developed and mature person. Okay, those change. That might include a lot of self-exploration. Maybe you need to travel to Thailand a few times to really find your inner self. Okay, um, so like there's values and attitudes, norms, competing consumption standards. That's all there. there. There is a value and attitude, but there's also an economic factor there. How does a person discover who you are? Well, you discover who you are by hitting major life milestones that trigger considerations about life, considerations about yourself. Uh, adoption of new behavioral sets that mature you. So finishing education, getting married, owning a home, having a stable job. These kinds of milestones mature you, right? Once you have a home, you learn to take care of it. Once you have a job that requires you to be there, you develop the habits of a stable person going to a job. Once you are no longer in school, you stop being a child and you learn to do some adulting, right? And as school has extended well beyond legal adulthood, we have legal adults who are still thinking that someone is going to give them a syllabus about what's expected of them in life, right? Now, I'm not condemning Canadian young adults for this. These are rational things. It's not like if you just drop out of school that your life goes great. But my point is, 
economically, structurally, we've created a society where the, the life events that provoke self-development come later and later and later and later. So there's a values change about what it means to be developed and also an economic structural change about when people hit their major milestones. And I can tell you, if, if you just go through the top reasons that people gave for like factors influencing their, their family plans, wanting to grow and develop as a person is the biggest one. Then you get uh, the desire to save money, especially for retirement. Let me be clear. The generalized abstract desire for savings was a bigger factor than housing costs, childcare costs, uh, insufficient salaries, low wages, unstable employment. Just this nebulous, I just want to make sure I've got enough of, an, of, of just a pile of money for general purposes. The need to focus on career, I need to get ahead in my career before I have a kid. The belief that children require intense care, uh, and that's one to come back to. The lack of a suitable partner, the desire for leisure consumption and travel, the desire to have leisure and freedom, still living with your parents, still in school. These are the top reasons. After those reasons, there's like a, a major break and then all the other reasons are small. Those are the big reasons people give. And those are mostly life course. I just haven't hit the stable career point yet. And then I, I will, I do want them. I just haven't gotten to the stable career point yet. You know, I want kids. I still live with my parents. I want kids, but I'm still in school. I'm just not there yet. That's the main reason. And that is both about values and attitudes and stru economic structures. There's an avenue for policy, tackling those economic structures. And there's an avenue for policy, thinking about how we engage with those values and attitudes. But those are very different policies, and some of them are very weird. <laughs> a lot of insight there. The subject of delayed family formation is something that we've talked about on the podcast, and, and not just because I'm a 40-year-old father of a, of a two-year-old and a seven-week-old, but because, as you say, Yeah, how's Lyman, your back feeling? <laughs> <laughs> but because, as you say, this is increasingly the experience of a lot of uh, Canadians. And the consequence, to come back to the paper, is the net effect is that we're having, on average, 0 0.5 fewer children than we say mm -hmm. we want. I know the report isn't a policy paper. It's supposed to situate and inform future policy research by Cardis, but you yourself are a serious thinker and scholar on family policy, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. What are two or three areas that Canadian, Canadian yeah. policymakers might focus on if they wanted to try to close the gap between desired and actual family size? So I'd point to three broad realms to frame our thinking. So the, the first thing is I do want to emphasize this paper, you're right, it's not a policy paper. What, what it really is, is a shot across the bow. It's saying this is an issue. We need to be thinking about policies for this because the, the reality is right now, no country has rolled out a set of generalized policies that like successfully launched a fertility revolution. Actually, let me roll that back. Two countries have, but they're unique cases that are not going to replicate easily. But the point is, nobody's just like found a silver bullet policy that will fix everything, which means we need experimentation. We need very open dialogue about how to help families achieve the things they want for their life. And, uh, and we need some experimentation. So that's the main call of this paper is just kind of like, let's start throwing some stuff at the wall and see what sticks. So when we think about things to throw at the wall, it can fall in three big buckets. Kind of a mixed metaphor. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, the first one is like direct costs of having kids. 
So this is stuff like a child allowance or a baby bonus or childcare subsidies, okay? It's like we're just throwing money at, it costs money to have kids. There's a ton of research on these policies. A lot of countries do that. They do work a little bit. You throw money at it, you get a little bit more babies. Okay, so that's the first bucket. Can I just, can I just inter- interject yeah. for one second? Because one of the most interesting findings in the paper is that, and it speaks to your point of, about the kind of nuanced nature of a policy response tackling both the economic as well as the value-based drivers behind these developments mm-hmm. is often characterized as having a pro-natalist or pro-family set of policies, including its highly subsidized childcare system. And yet you find that fertility, fertility intentions have fallen more there than anywhere else in the country. So all this to say, those policies are, are no doubt useful and important, but they, they aren't but they're a, limited. Sil- a silver bullet. Yeah, they're not a silver bullet. It actually, we talk about child care costs, but that wasn't one of like, I think that that's like maybe like number 18 on the reasons that, that women cited in this survey or something. But I do want to emphasize the question about generalized savings was like, a, came up a lot. Like that was a big one. Which is odd, of course, right? Because it's not reflected in Canadians' own Well, behavior. I think a good, a good way to think about this is maybe we should think about, and I don't know Canada's current system on this, so Canada might already have something about this, in which case it's called to expand rather than invent, but child care retirement credits. And what I mean is, in a calculation of public pension benefits, you should get bonus points and bonus pension money if you have babies. Um, if you took time off work to raise your kids, or maybe if you didn't, just if you had kids, you get more money in retirement. This is a big worry people have. And also the nice thing about it is this, the costs of this would be way down the line. And that is, if you stimulate people to have kids, by the time you'd pay the cost in their parents' retirement, the kids are earning. It's like, financially, it's easier to swing than like an immediate child allowance. But, but the point is, it might be something to think about because this is something people say that they care about. There is some academic research showing that that retirement-based interventions do impact family formation. So, you know, it it's, could be a productive avenue. But that's one set. It's these like basically fiscal transfers. The second is what we can think of as economic structures. So this is stuff like, are we regulating the housing market inappropriately? Or do we need to change the regulations so that we can build more housing. I think that's a very productive attitude. There's a lot of research showing that more liberalized zoning and more more rapidly growing housing supply leads to more babies. If people's mortgages randomly decline for some reason in terms of their monthly payment, a lot of the saved money goes into making babies. There's some very nice research showing that using really high quality data. So, you know, housing reform. But another one is thinking about educational reform. I think it would be worthwhile to have a commission that randomly looks at public job postings and looks at them and says, you say this job requires a college degree. You have proof. What is the skill that the college student is going to learn in college that this job requires? Show it to us. And if it doesn't, then we'll be expecting you to hire some number of non-college graduates for this job. And I know that sounds very like nanny state-ish, but at the end of the day, we have to think about occupational licensing. Some jobs have formal occupational licensing that prohibits people from doing a job until they have the right piece of paper. And look, if it's a surgeon operating on you, that makes sense. If it's an interior decorator, that doesn't make sense. Okay? 
So we should be thinking about licensing that is not for health and safety purposes and whether it's necessary. And I got a spoiler for you. Most jobs that say must have college degree, it is not a health and safety concern. It's just about signaling that you're a smarty pants. Okay. So I think we need to think about that on the labor market side. Or, you know, can we find a way to nudge companies into doing more careful analysis of job candidates and actually looking at their skills rather than just using degree and certification based signals? Beyond that, I think we need to think about educational timelines. Can we incentivize schools to get four years of college done in three? Can we do that? Quebec has slightly higher fertility than the rest of Canada. The conventional story on this is because it's, that it's because of childcare. I'm skeptical because if you actually look, what's really going on in Quebec is that on average, they have children about a year and a half earlier than the rest of Canada. And that explains the whole difference. Why do they have children a year and a half earlier? Sejep. It's Sejep. It's the fact in Quebec, people finish their high school a year earlier. And then a lot of them go to Sejep and they finish their quote unquote higher education two years earlier. And then some go on to university and finish at the same time. Quebec has a system that gets a lot of people done with school a year or two faster. The result is they have babies a year or two earlier. And the result is they have 0.1, 0.2 more kids by the time they're done. That's the story. That's what's happening. I think. I can't prove it, but I think. So finding a way to get school done faster is important. We want to help people hit those life development milestones quickly. Again, and I want to emphasize this. The point of this report is not women shouldn't go to college. They should stay home and make babies. The point is, let's try and get them all their degrees, all their certifications faster, get them the career they want at 25 instead of 30 so that they can feel stable, so that they can use their mat leave when they are healthier and have lower miscarriage risks and don't have to pay for IVF. Like, that's the goal here. The goal is not get in the kitchen. The goal is have it all. And if you want to stay home, great. Love it. Or even have the number of kids that you want to have, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. The goal is to have the life you want. Like in some way, in the paper, and this may be a good segue to a final question, because you you write that, quote, Canadian fertility rates are too low in the paper, which is arguably an empirical and normative statement. Um, but in a way, the research isn't making normative judgments about how many children Canadian women ought to have. It's zeroing in on the fact that Canadian women are having fewer kids than they say they want to have. There is a normative framework in this paper. And it's one that I'm just, you know, look under the, we can look under the hood here a little bit that we discussed a lot on the editing of the report. Because look, most of us associated with Cardis, this is not a secret, are like broadly religious people who have normative values that are not just generic liberalism. Okay? We, we might be committed to, you know, liberalism, but like this is not the sum of our values. That's not the normative framework of this paper. The normative framework of this paper is liberalism. Okay, people say they want this. Therefore, we believe it is a positive good for society, for government to help them achieve it. Because the purpose of liberal government is to enable human flourishing as defined by individuals themselves. 
that is, this framework, this paper has a normative framework, that is it. Is that the normative framework that I use to guide my life personally? No, it is not. (laughs) But it's the framework of public discourse in the liberal, in the liberal pluralistic society that we all inhabit. So we think it's a compelling one. But I do want to get to my third bucket of policies because it's the fun one. So I mentioned there are two countries that have had successful pronatal policies. They're Israel and Georgia. Actually, there's a third one, Romania, but they did it through savage totalitarianism that led to a lot of dead and orphaned children as well. So no one wants that one. (laughs) So bracketed, we're ignoring Romania. Bad example, no one wants. The other two are Israel and Georgia. The Israeli case, it has a lot to do with the uniques of the uniqueness of being a, a, a jeopardized and threatened country surrounded by countries that want to kill you and having a, a religion with a distinctively pronatal position, all this stuff. Um, Georgia is the one I want to focus on because in 2007, the leader of the Georgian Orthodox Church, which is like 90% of the people, did a big campaign to encourage more fertility. I won't bother you in all the details, but the point is he had a huge, highly publicized campaign to try and convince people to have third kids. It worked. The fertility rate went from 1.5 to 2.2 in 18 months. It started nine months after his announcement. It has remained near replacement for like 15 years now. This guy, he has personally baptized something like 50,000 third-born children in Georgia since this campaign began, which is like 30% of all third-born children in Georgia. The increase was driven by third-born children to marry Georgian Orthodox couples, which was, those were the people like eligible for the special benefits and stuff. And it didn't cost a penny. It was an ideological intervention. So when we think about ideological interventions, they're hard to frame in a liberal society where our government is somewhat committed to some degree of neutrality. Now, there's some ideologies our government actively promotes, you know, uh, good government, democracy, yada, yada. But but family size, okay. So what ideology can there be? And I'll say this. Every time the government interacts with a family, which is a lot, healthcare, schools, education, all this stuff, child services, something is communicated about parenting, good parenting. There is an unspoken message. Usually the message is, you really need to try hard to be good parenting and learn more and do more and it's complicated and here's a list of what you should do to be a good parent and this gets to a big theme of the report which is intensive parenting we found canadians really believe that being a parent is so so hard it is so much work it is a, it's not just a full-time job it's a stressful full-time job you get the sense it's not super fun for a lot of these respondents for me personally it's a lot of fun my kids are they're totally crazy they're they're weird, but, but it's fun. It is work, but it's fun work. It's hard work, but it's fun work. I think the government should consider that when you have a baby and a 600-page manual is put in a parent's hand, that is an act of ideological communication about how to be a good parent. And the answer is, do your research. That is a bad message. Now, look, I'm not saying like you should just like, oh, whatever, who knows how to care for my kid. Like, yeah, you should, you should, whatever, like you know, read the manual. But, but that's probably not the best message for helping people achieve their goals. We need to find a way 
or in every interaction that a government has with families to communicate, you can parent. You have what it takes. This is something virtually all humans do, or at least it used to be the virtue that all humans did this. And in the vast majority of cases, they did a fine job of it. Like, is everybody the best parent? No. Almost everybody's an adequate parent. And you can be too. And you know what? Is it a lot of work? Yeah, but it can be a lot of fun work. You can do it with people. So society will come around you and help you and support you. You don't need to be stressed out of your mind about this. We're going to help you with this. You have what it takes. You've got this. And it's going to be a crazy ride, but it's going to be fun. That is the message our governments need to communicate. Not, we're a baby-friendly hospital, which means we're a mom-unfriendly hospital. Right? We get all this like, oh, we're kid-friendly, which means we expect the parents to do 57 hours of volunteer work to be part of this daycare. Okay? It's insane. We need to find a way for the government to counter-program the extremely high-intensity norms of modern parenting. You don't have to put your kids in 57 classes. If you want to, that's okay. That's fine. But you don't have to. It's okay. You don't have to, you know, learn a specific parenting style and memorize a set of key phrases that will trick your child into becoming an empathetic person. You don't have to. It's okay. They might end up a little bit messed up. Everybody does. Okay? Why we have counselors. Like, we just need to have a little bit more like, take the parenting wars down a notch. Chill out. The vast majority of people are fine parents. And that's fine. And that is the ideology of pronatalism. It's been a fascinating conversation on a fascinating and, and highly important topic. The report is, she's not having a baby. Why half of Canadian women are falling short of their fertility desires. Uh, Lyman Stone, senior fellow at the Cardis Institute. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.